Hello everyone, it's my pleasure and an honor for me to have been invited to talk to you about how the fact how the First World War is still affecting people's lives today. So I'm coming from Belgium, tiny little country which most of you will at least know where it is. Um, the salient, the bulge in the front line around the city of Ypres. So currently I'm living 10 kilometers from the city of Ypres. The spelling you may see on this map, let it be clear, that is the French spelling. If ever you make it to the salient, don't look for that, you won't find it. It's with a capital I, it's not leper, it's Yper in Dutch. The language spoken in the north of the country of, is Dutch, of course. All Belgians are supposed to be bilingual, but let it be clear that Dutch is the language in the north. So the North Sea is to the north of the salient and France is ever so close to the south. When talking of the salient, I'm talking of a narrow strip of land of about 10 kilometers, which stretch for 60 kilometers in our country. So the times have been asked how long that it, it took to rebuild Belgium once the First World War had come to an end. I have to correct that immediately in saying that not the whole of Belgium was affected by it. Sure enough, there had been a war on the move and certain cities had suffered damage, but where the real damage was, that was that narrow strip of land from the outskirts of Ypres till Passchendaele. That was completely wiped off this area. And I dare say one of the main mistakes which has been made during the First World War on the Allied side was the opening bombardment for the Battle of Passchendaele. From July 16 till July 30th, all available guns had been lined up on the western side, sorry, the eastern side of Ypres, shelling this area. A narrow strip of land, which was at that stage about 10, uh, 8 kilometers deep, they were launching their shells on, and 15 kilometers wide. During that fortnight alone, 4.2 million shells have been dropped on that narrow strip of land. Well, do have to make a drawing to explain what it does to the soil. Every square meter of earth had been turned up, time after time. Not only was the structure of the soil completely destroyed, but the drainage system, which is so essential in Flanders, that had gone as well. There's one part which no army can control, and that's the weather. And usually, our wet season, if I can put it like that, comes in wintertime, October till February. That is when we ex expect our heavy rains. Well, the topsoil in Belgium is lime. We have about that much lime sitting on the surface and clay below. Some of our fields would have a bigger layer of lime, but there's always clay below. So you know for a fact when it rains, the water will sink through the lime and will then gather on top of the clay. If you don't drain it away, that's where it sits. And the next year, as a farmer, if you put pressure on the topsoil, the water will simply come to the surface again, creating a slurry. Well, soldiers involved in the Battle of Passchendaele have known that only too well. I told you that, you know, or said that, no, the weather can't be controlled by the army. Well, in 1917, it rained and it rained and it rained from July 31st on. Still today, the month of August 1917 is in the top 10 of wettest months ever recorded. So how does it translate to reality? Well, in that way. This is how Passchendaele and the area looked like once the Battle of Passchendaele had come to an end. Now the shelling, the continuous shelling, not a single house, not a single tree, not a single road survived. What happened to the civilians? October 20th, 1914, that is when the civilians abandoned the area 
on the western side of Ypres. On October 19, 1914, the previous day, the German army reached the neighboring town of Rousselare, which is about 10 kilometers further to the east. And sure enough, French soldiers defending Rousselare opened fire towards the German enemy. For some reason or another, the Germans assumed that Belgium civilians had got involved. And just to make sure that that wasn't going to happen again, you know, the Germans took some male inhabitants of the city of Rousselare and executed them. Many of the farmers' daughters were working as cleaning ladies, as washing ladies, with the wealthy families in town, and coming home in the evening, talking of stories they had heard of, talking of things they'd witnessed, the local population started to become scared. And sure enough, they were scared the following day, as the rumor was spreading round that the Germans were pushing forward. So on October 20th, the locals loaded whatever was valuable to them, and off they went, to France. Well, as I said at the beginning, France isn't all that far, really. We're talking of 20 kilometers to the south. At that stage, early days of the war, October 14, everyone, whether you were a German soldier, whether you were an Allied soldier, or whether you were a Belgian refugee, everyone was still convinced it was all going to be over by Christmas. So yes, civilians did abandon their houses. Only for a couple of weeks, was it? It was all proved to be a bad nightmare. It's only when the first, first Battle of Ypres is coming to an end, and then I'm talking of November 1914, that it starts to dawn on both sides that Christmas is no longer an option. Belgian refugees, packed solid in the northern part of France, are being distributed all over France, compulsory, because there was too much pressure on those tiny little villages in the north. Many of the farmers ended up in Normandy and in Brittany. I would say if ever you go that way, pick up a phone book, and I know for a fact you will stumble across Dutch-sounding names, which is a direct result of the First World War. Where us Belgians, we are renowned for the fact that we are very much tied down to the place where we were born. So you would expect that once armistice is signed, November 1918, that everyone returns. Well, that's not the case. Not in 18 and not in 19. In 1919, the Belgian bomb disposal, together with some private firms being paid by the Belgian government, their task is to clean up the battlefields. Live ammunition, debris, reburying soldiers as well. British military presence in the salient lasted till September 1921. The first civilians to come back to the salient came in the spring of 1920. And that's what, uh, what we see then, is that people come back to villages and to cities, because most of those civilians owned their houses. And sure enough, they wanted to pick up the thread of their lives again, they wanted to start building again and start from scratch again. The countryside, the situation there is slightly different. Going back to medieval times, most farms were in hands of noble families. And that's no different for the farm I ended up in as I got married. That one, too, was owned by a noble family in Brussels. So for farmers to come back to an area which was completely destroyed, to start from scratch again on fields which weren't even theirs, the vast majority said, no, thank you, and they stayed in France. After all, life in France proved to be not all that bad. You know. So farmers not only did they have to build up the property, but reinstalling a drainage system was expensive and time-consuming. So the countryside remained more or less abandoned. Today, if you look in the salient, there's relatively few farmers' families which are going back any further than 1920. 
How do you convince a population to settle somewhere? Well, that's the same rule throughout the world. Promise them money and they'll come. 1920, the Albert Fund was raised in order to attract people to come back to the salient. Money came from Germany, reparation money, and was promised to whoever was willing to pick up the, level, the, the challenge to level the fields again and to make it livable again. My husband's great-grandmother, she must have been what I would describe a strong-willed lady because she took the opportunity to move from Maldegem and Maldegem is as the crow flies about 45 kilometers to the northeast of the salient. So she took the opportunity to move from Maldegem to Passchendaele Poolkapelle. In Maldegem they were running a farm which was barely big enough to provide an income to sustain the family. There were tenant farmers there, so moving to Passchendaele Nothing changed. They became tenant farmers there as well. But on a property which was twice the size. The first five years, no rent to be paid, because it was assumed it was going to take them five years to level the fields. And on top of that, per hectare they were able to level, they were going to be financially compensated. It must have sounded like music. But if it was music at all, it surely wasn't a nice tune, because as they arrived, this is what they found. There was nothing. Not a house to live in, just no nothing. They had to build a barrack made of corrugated iron plates and wooden boards. An auntie of my mother-in-law died two years ago and she often told me those first years were hell. They had to start from scratch, really. According to my husband's grandmother, who was 14 years as she arrived in the area, she said, well, there was still so much life ammunition dotted around, you know. All over, the far, all over the area. So this, for instance, is a trench map showing the situation before the Battle of Passchendaele. Well, this here is, was an earth track at the time. It's, today, it's a little Bettyman road. According to my husband's grandmother, there was live ammunition piled up that high on either side, just left behind. There's far too much for the bomb disposal to cope with. Now, as long as there were no civilians in the area, the situation was fairly easy. They were collecting live ammunition, putting it in, in big uh, shell craters and setting it to blow. But once civilians are settling in the area, that becomes too tricky. So farmers are giving the bomb disposal a hand in their own way. And that meant dumping live am ammunition into craters, bit of earth on top of it, and didn't it solve two problems in one go. They managed to level the fields fairly quick and they managed to get rid of all live stuff. Well, it proved to be a solution on short terms, but not on long terms. Whatever has been buried at the time is gradually being pushed to the surface again. Still today, live ammunition is being ploughed to the surface. But I'll come back to that later on. What we see on this trench map, well, the original position of Varlet Farm, which was a moated farm, not unusual, unusual for uh, Flanders, low ground means wet ground. Varlet Farm is 25 metres above sea level. Anything to the north of the province is land which has been reclaimed onto the sea, so it's below sea level. So fields are basically below the surface or always wet. Having a moat was essential to drain the water away from a low situated farm. The farm has been destroyed, as any other farm, and has been brought closer to the road. For those having a specific interest in maps, I would say go to First World War trench maps and put modern INGN maps next to it and you will notice immediately that all farms have moved position. Simply because they have been rebuilt, in most cases very close to the original farm. Never on the same spot though. 
not on the same spot because the foundations of the original farms did not meet the expectations of the modern buildings of 1922. Because that is when the building really picked up, from 1922 onwards. And secondly, building close by to the original site allowed them to recycle some of the original brickwork, if I can put it like that. Let it be clear that the bricks were destroyed, but when, you know, the present farm we live in, the outside walls have all been built with new bricks. The inside walls, on the other hand side, that was Belgium recycling avant la lettre. That was taking all rubble with a bit of plaster on either side and that will do. Bricks were in high demand, of course, in the early 1920s. Everyone wanted to, to build, so whatever you could recycle was cutting back the cost of building. What you see to the north as well here is a German trench cutting across our fields with barbed wire fence in front of it, heavy battery position behind it. So a heavy battery position means field guns lined up there. And still today there's proof that indeed German field guns were lined up because where you have guns, live ammunition has to be brought forward. A fair amount of those shells never ever made it through the barrel of the gun but just disappeared into the mud in order to be pushed up to the surface again that many years later. Further to the south, you can see cemetery. Well, there was a German cemetery established on our fields during the first or the second Battle of Ypres. The farm was captured on the 20th of October 1914 and remained behind the German lines till the 26th of October 1917. So during the last stage of the Battle of Passchendaele, it has been retaken. Three full years behind the German lines. Well, those cemeteries, there were cemeteries all over the farm, I must say. According to my husband's grandmother, there were three German cemeteries on the farm. I've never seen any reference on maps of the other two, but I know where they used to be. I hope you realize that when the war finally came to an end, hundreds of cemeteries on either side, far too many to maintain. So the decision has been taken in January 1919 to round up the small cemeteries, and that means the ones with less than 50 bodies. Those had to be exhumed, and then you have two options. The bodies you bring to the surface, either you concentrate several small cemeteries into a new one, a concentration cemetery, which will always have the word new in the name. So whenever you visit the Western Front and you see a cemetery with the word new in it, already you know it did not exist during wartime. It has been built up between January 1919 and September 1921. Another option, of course, is to the bodies which you bring up to the surface to add them to an already existing cemetery. Tynecott is the best example from that one. Tynecott, today the largest Commonwealth war grave cemetery on the European continent, with nearly 12,000 graves, initially was a tiny little cemetery, but thousands of bodies have been brought in. September 21, the Allies had, a, had 150 cemeteries in the salient, and the Germans had 130 cemeteries, which balances out fairly well. All the fields on which the Allied cemeteries have been established have been given by the Belgian government to the Imperial War Graves Commission at the time, common, today Commonwealth War Graves Commission, in perpetuity. Well, it doesn't mean eternity. It means 125 years. But rest assured that once that period of time will have expanded, another, you know, it will be extended with another 125 years and so on. The German cemeteries, however, were given a license valid for 30 years. And if we then start calculating September 21 plus 30, September 51. Well, hooray! We've just gone through the whole story again. 
And as a result of that, the Belgian authorities weren't really keen on renewing all the licenses. Four licenses have been renewed, forcing the German authorities in the early 1950s to exhume 126 cemeteries. And some of those were big. There was a German cemetery near Brutzende, 7,000 graves. All of those had to be exhumed. This cemetery disappeared in the early 1950s. There's a practical problem. Narrowing 130 down to 4, well, there's not sufficient space. And that has been solved by establishing mass graves. The German World War I cemetery closest to Violet Farm, which is about 5 kilometers to the north, although it's not the largest one, already it holds the remains of 44,000. 25,000 buried together in a mass grave and the rest is under plaques. That's another difference with, um, with allied cemeteries. They don't have the headstones, they just have the bronze plaques flat on the ground. I would say almost symbolic. What you see on this map too is a battalion trench and a communication trench. And the amazing thing is, it seems to be going just south of the farm. Have a look at this. The same battalion trench is to be seen, and the communication trench goes directly to Violet Farm. Violet Farm was a German strong point. It is indicated on the map with the sea, but I guess from there you couldn't see the sea, meaning concrete. It had been fortified with concrete. The German trench to the north is not on the map, but you can clearly see the cemetery here. This line here was a footpath at the time, which went further south. Well, today there's only that small section still preserved of that footpath. But this line is important to the New Zealanders. It's the divisional boundary, just to the south of it. That's where the New Zealanders went over the top. On October the 12th, 1917, the attack on Wolf Farm, because Wolf Farm is to be seen here. The present Wolf Farm has actually moved position and is about there now. So the New Zealand forces went over the top on fields of Violet Farm, October the 12th. 1917. The New Zealand Memorial of Schraventafel is basically just to the south, you know, I would say it's about a kilometre and a half as the crow flies to the south uh, west of the farm. So that is the situation before the Battle of Passchendaele. I've seen an aerial picture taken after the Battle of Passchendaele and I regret the fact that I didn't take a picture of it because, well, there's nothing to be seen. It looks like the landscape of the moon, completely destroyed. So how does the First World War still affect people's lives today? Human remains is one part of it. Farmers don't find human remains because we are working in the soil about that deep with the plough and about that deep with the cultivator. And it must happen that farm equipment is hitting skeletons being pushed to the surface. But you won't hear it, you won't see it. I know it sounds indecent, but there's nothing we can do about it. Having said that, on average, the remains of 30 soldiers are still being unearthed per year. Not by farmers, by contractors. Working with big digging machines, taking a whole lot of earth and tipping it out. Oh, bones? We better have a closer look there. And that is how soldiers are being found. The procedure is, whenever human remains are discovered, that you have to call the police. And they come round to check whether it's not someone who's been murdered more recently. In most cases, a button, part of the equipment, an insignia, will give away that you're dealing with the remains of the soldiers. And in most cases you can identify the nationality just as well, and with some luck even the regiment. Police comes out, says, OK, it's a victim of the First World War. The remains will be handed over to an officer of the Belgium Army, whose task it is to identify the nationality and to hand over the remains 
to the country involved or to the services involved. July 2011, nearby the village of Messines, which I know is written in capital letters in New Zealand history, the Battle of Messines, where the New Zealanders played a major part, well, a collecting point for water has been built, and doing so, human remains were discovered. Martin O'Connor, who is a New Zealander living in Belgium, the Waiuru uh, Army Museum and the New Zealand archives have worked together to f see whether they could build up evidence to prove that really he was a New Zealand soldier. There was a batch of, amount of mounted rifles found next to him. Based on their report, the New Zealand Ministry of Defence has declared him to be an unknown soldier of the New Zealand forces. He has been reburied with full military honour on the 3rd of February this year on uh, Messines Ridge, British Cemetery, uh, you know, nearby the village of Messines, very close to the place where he actually died. So still today, 30 soldiers. It's an amazing amount. I have to say that only the Commonwealth War Graves Commission goes all the way in trying to identify soldiers. The Germans are not really interested. A German soldier has been found near, uh, near Zonnebeck a couple of years ago with part of the dock tag still there. It wasn't complete, but uh, come on, they had part of it. With a bit of an effort, that could have been successful. How else are we being confronted with the First World War? Well, in this way. And this is part of daily life for any farmer within the salient. Whenever you plough, whenever you work in the soil, whenever you harvest crops from the soil, you know you're going to be confronted with live ammunition. It's just part of daily life. From left to right, there's German, French and British ammunition. These are the most commonly used types of shells we come across our fields. I can't tell you, not to 100 precise, not to 200 precise, how many 18-pounders I've carried home over the years. Well, clear enough, because our, our farm was behind the German lines, the majority of ammunition we find is British ammunition. Um, there's an, an endless amount. Until 2009, the bomb disposal was collecting a number that easily floated over 200 tons a year. Not pieces, tons. The number of last year has dropped to 140 tons, but that's still 94 years later. It's unbelievable. And then the question is being raised, how many more years? Well, I can tell you that none of us in this room uh, present here will live long enough to see the last shell coming to the surface. There's many more years to come, you know. When farmers are ploughing, they will hear the plough hitting artefacts. Bones you don't hear. Iron you do hear. Iron and iron, it makes a noise. And it's not as such that a farmer will pull back and, you know, starting to dig to find out, to check out what he might been hitting. Whether it's a live shell, part of an other shell, cartridge, he don't know. Fact is that when hitting one of these, not a problem. The plough will push it over gently. And next year, the pressure in the soil will push it up a bit higher. And the year after, again, it's being pushed a bit higher. Well, sooner or later, there will come a day that the plough will cut underneath the shells, turning the whole lot to the surface. So why would you dig for it? It's just a matter of being patient. They'll come to the surface anyway. The only times we actually do dig is when hitting something really big. And something big, well, a couple of years back, we, had, we hooked into a roll of barbed wire. And that doesn't move over, so the tractor starts spinning on the spot, you have a problem, and then you have to reverse and check, checking out what's causing the problem. We do have a lump of a uh, bunker, a pillbox, on one of our fields as well. There were, if you look at trench maps, there was a pillbox indicated. However, for us, it's impossible to find out whether that pillbox has been destroyed during the war or later on.
And later on, believe it or not, in the late 1920s, the Belgian government was giving subsidies to destroy bunkers. Today, they're doing the opposite. They're giving subsidies to preserve bunkers. So that's the Belgian government for you. No. But the fact is that there's a huge lump of concrete in one of our fields, and year after year, the plough is being damaged because it's too big to bring, to bring it to the surface, but it's still hitting the plough each and every time again, still sitting there. So how can we identify shells? Because as I moved into the area, I wasn't born in Passchendaele. I was born 10 kilometers behind the front line. So this wasn't part of my daily life on the farm. It became part when I moved onto the battlefield and we started coming across shells. So my husband, who was basically born and raised with it, well, to him, it's just a shell, a nuisance. Put it aside. Well, this one wanted to know more about it. I wanted to know what kind of shell, which nationality. So it took me a bit of uh, research to find out, but it's a, there's an easy way to identify shells according to nationality, looking at the driving band. Narrow driving band, low to the base, German. Narrow driving band, higher from the base, French. Broad driving band, low to the base, British. As simple as that. What about Belgian ammunition? Well, I can't tell you. For the simple reason that we don't find any Belgian ammunition, the Belgians were fighting further to the north, from Boesinger up to the North Sea. The only time the Belgians actually passed through Passchendaele, which was the liberation offensive of September 28, 1918, well, by then the Belgians were commonly using the 75mm French gun. So, no Belgian stuff to be found around Violet Farm. We are finding shells of three nationalities. We are finding shells in three different conditions. The one standing up to the left, that is a shell which has been fired and did explode. And you might wonder, while well, it's still complete, I'll come back to that later on. You know. The one laying down in the middle is a shell which has been fired and didn't go off. You can tell by the driving band, it's nicely carved in, while on the inside of the barrel of a gun, there's rifling welded, which is circling round. The rifling is carving in on the driving band, giving that spinning move to the shell to make sure that it goes precisely where you aim it at. So whenever you see a shell with a carved-in driving band, already you know it has been fired. Doesn't guarantee you that it went off as well, because this one didn't. Has been fired, the fuse still there, so it's a dead one. And to the right-hand side, an unused one. An unused British 18-pounder. Theoretically seen, we can't even find those. Because although Violet Farm was captured by the Royal Naval Division, on October 26, 1917, the front line has only been pushed 500 meters forward. In other words, the British artillery has never even been close to Violet Farm. St. Julian, St. Jan, further to the west, that is where the British artillery was, not close to the farm. So theoretically seen, we can't find unused ammunition, and yet I've got one of those. But there's a nice little story attached to that one. I do welcome coach groups on the farm for guided tours of the collection of artifacts. And last year, towards the end of the year, I welcomed the coach group with Canadian youngsters touring the whole Western Front. The Somme, Fimi Ridge, Northern France, the salient. And they were booked in for a lunch stop at my place, so while the youngsters were having a meal, I had a chat with the driver, the guide, and the, uh, the school teacher of that group sitting together at the end of the table. And I kind of said to them, in a couple of minutes' time, you will be surprised to see the huge amount of live ammunition which is still coming to the surface. Immediately, the teacher turned to me and he said, Live ammunition? You must be joking. And I said, well, I'm not. You'll see. 
And then he looked me in the eye and he said, hmm, and how would you know? And I thought, okay, I'll get back to you. So I took the group outside and I started providing information and the same teacher stepped forward. And then he said to me, Charlotte, now that I realize there is live ammunition to be found, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, well, I remember that I saw some of our youngsters picking something up nearby Vimy. Do I need to say more? An unused 18-pounder and a Dutch 13-pounder in the boot of a coach on Flanders Cobblestone Road <laughs> on its way to Violet Farm. I said to that teacher, how could you? You are supposed to be responsible for this group. How could you allow them to take live ammunition? And he simply said, I didn't know, you know. Well, I can tell you one thing, that man has taken a lesson of a lifetime. <laughs> Never say to a woman, how would you know? So we are finding shells of different types as well. The one the top to the left here, this one, I've added to be complete. But I must be honest in saying that the Belgian bomb disposal has never ever found one of those on the battlefields of Flanders. It's a canister. The canister and the shrapnel shell are very much alike, filled in with shrapnel balls. This one is made in brass, that one is made in iron. That's the difference. The brass canisters are bursting open as soon as they leave the barrel of the gun. So they're very, well, I would say, ready to be used, they haven't, uh, to, to be found. They haven't been found at all in the salient. Shrapnel shells, on the other hand side, that's a different story. Our farm, small country, 30,000 square kilometers, farms are small as well. We have 40 acres, which is about the average of a farm in the salient. Every year again, we plow to the surface between 20 and 30 larve shells. And let it be clear that they haven't all been dropped on our fields. The neighbors are finding just as many. So shrapnel shells, shrapnel shells are very much in the mound as well. You in the old days, uh, we used to leave them outside the farm gate. And I can guarantee you, you put a shell here today, the following morning, it walked away. <laughs> Private collectors are very, very keen on shrapnel shells. They have the reputation of being fairly harmless. Well, I wouldn't give it a try, but that's how they, you know, the reputation goes. So shrapnel shells, high explosive shells, high explosive in combination with smoke and fire, <coughs> toxic shells, vomiting gas. And that covers the whole lot of types of shells which is to be found on the salient. Shrapnel shells are used to wound and kill soldiers, high explosive shells, used to destroy pillboxes, tanks, buildings. So these had to go off on impact. And that partly explains why so many of those didn't go off. The impact on Flanders mud wasn't hard enough. They just went into the mud and that was it. What I would like to bring to your attention is the cartridges here. Cartridge matches underneath a shell. This is a German cartridge for the simple reason we can't find British cartridges. They stay with the field gun, and we didn't have British artillery, so no British cartridges to be found. German ones, however, where the German battery position was, that's where we find the cartridges. So those are filled in with cordite. Cordite is developing the power to launch a projectile. Well, cartridges were being recycled. Once the shell has been fired, it was empty, dropped out of the field gun, piled up behind it, and was being shipped all the way back to the UK, where it was a women's job to screw in a new charge to fill it in with cordite again. Women working in those factories with cordite, which is a chemical, day in, day out, they lost their hair, they lost their teeth, and the skin turned out to be yellow. They were nicknamed canary girls. 
A nickname they took with pride because it made clear to society that they too were doing their fair share in wartime effort. It also occurred that soldiers were eating cordite. Not that they were so particularly fond of the taste of it, but when eating cordite it results in the fact that the heartbeat goes up, the temperature goes up and the skin turns out to be grey. Soldiers were ill, reported themselves ill, hoping to get a ticket back home. Sadly enough for them, it didn't last all that long until doctors recognized the symptoms of someone who had been eating cordite. And rather than being sent home, if you were lucky, you were sent to the front line. And if you weren't lucky, you were sent to court-martial. Some soldiers have been executed for trying to get away from their duty by eating cordite. More than words can possibly explain the fact that young men were eating this is making clear to us how desperate they must have been. And after two, three, four years of warfare, I think we can all understand that one. How is live ammunition being dealt with? Well, the Belgian law says that each and every time we come across live ammunition, we have to report it. I can openly say that we break that law each and every time as well. We don't report one shell at a time. Farmers are making small collections which are being reported twice, three times a year. And then the bomb disposal comes out and takes a whole lot in one go. The picture you see at the right hand side, well that's good old days, I would say. Farmers used to use the electricity standard to store live ammunition at the end of the field. But the problem started to occur that more private collectors were being a step ahead of the bomb disposal. So because too many accidents started to occur, it became forbidden. Whereas I know of only one farmer who actually died while plowing his fields as a result of an exploding, exploding shell. I can add immediately that on average one Belgium civilian is being killed as a result of shells exploding. But then you can't really describe it as an accident. It happens to private collectors who consider, consider themselves to be brave and wise and clever enough to dismantle life ammunition. Our neighbor's son blew himself in 1979, working on a British 18-pounder shrapnel shell with a grinder. Wasn't a clever thing, you know. So it still happens. Every year again, it still happens. There's one of those fairy tales which I want to uh, make clear that it is a fairy tale. Farmers do not drive around with protective shields underneath their tractor. Don't you believe that one? I've never ever heard of a shell going off while a farmer is driving on top of a field. When explosions do occur, and that's twice, three times a year on average, a shell will go off while being hit by farm equipment. So the explosion will always come from behind, never from below. The only way to protect yourself would be a tractor, then a shield, and then your equipment. But then, of course, you can't see what you're doing, so it's not being done. Ammunition is being found. I can tell you, until 2007, we were growing fresh leeks for the fresh market. You know, harvesting machine for leeks has a square knife which is about that size going underneath the roots of the leek plants and then two soft belts are pulling the leeks to the surface. So my husband is driving the tractor. With a joystick he has to control the depth of that knife because otherwise it would go down deep into the soil. And my task is to collect those leeks from the conveyor belt into a container. At some point I was collecting the leeks and the whole machine lifted fast as it could and off I went on my back in the mud. Well, I can tell you I can be very friendly, but I can be on the other side of the scale as well. 
So I shouted at him, what on earth have you been doing? Assuming that he pulled the joystick just too fast, that the machine lifted too fast. And he replied, as men tend to do, it wasn't me, uh, we must have hit a rock. And said, well, there are no rocks in these fields. So we, you know, reversed, started to dig, and then we found a shell that size, which we nicely hid on the fuse. Well, I can tell you from then on, I was quite happy that I went down and not up, you know. It, you know, you need a bit of luck to be a farmer in Belgium. So whenever you come to the salient, keep your distance of these fans, please. They're always driving around with live ammunition. Next stage up, they go to the bomb disposal. The wooden crates are being unloaded. And a brave soldier of the Belgian bomb disposal is being given a hammer. And his task is to hammer away the mud. Then they can see the driving band measuring the caliber and they know which type of shell they're dealing with. From there on, it goes into the computer system. So basically, at the end of the year, with one push on the button, the Belgian bomb disposal can tell you exactly how many shells of every type they have been dealing with. The next stage up is this. Live ammunition will be put in a wooden crate, and the crate will be dug in twice a day, five days a week, seven months a year, and that's the result. That is happening six kilometers to the north of where I'm living. Well, you can set your watch to it, half past 11 in the morning, quarter to four in the afternoon. Not in winter time, simply because of the fact that the water table is sitting too high. As soon as they start digging, it fills in with water. So in, it's only from the March till October that shells are being set to blow. But that many years later, again, it makes clear what a huge amount of live ammunition has been pounded on these fields. I mentioned 4.2 million during the opening bombardment. Well, the Battle of Passchendaele alone, 100 days, 15 million shells. So sure enough, you'll find some more. Uh, there's an evolution of warfare going from the traditional ammunition to this. Gas. Fire, smoke and white phosphor, I won't go into, de into detail on that, but chlorine, toxic shells, that is when it really starts to become serious. The 22nd of April 1915, the very first time that gas has ever been used into warfare, sadly enough not the last time. Germany as a country was familiar with the use of chlorine in the textile industries and a number of accidents which had occurred had made clear what the effect of chlorine on human beings was. Burning the ice, burning the windpipe. Then came the link, why not pump it into canisters, digging it in their own trench with a tube and a tap over the parapet, and then it was simply a matter of waiting for the wind to be favourable. The German army had a little bit of a problem there. They were fighting from east to west. The weather in our country is coming from beautiful England, so the prevailing winds are west to east. So they couldn't release their gas. The first gas attack was set to take place across the Menin Road, going at a southeastern angle from the city of Ypres. Well, that couldn't occur because the wind didn't come from the south nor from the east. Eventually, the canisters have been moved to the northern sector, and that is where the gas has been used for the first time between Steenstraten and St. Julian. Chlorine gas is burning the ice. Belgium soldiers and French colonial soldiers confronted with the first gas attack, they ran away. And you can't blame them. They had no protection whatsoever. Canadians have saved the day in 1915. There's still a Canadian memorial there to commemorate their involvement in the first gas attacks. The German army took two lessons from the first gas attacks. You can't win the war when depending on the wind. That's not your companion. So we want to find a solution for that, and the solution was to pump the gas into the 77 mil. That gun was widely available on the Western Front, so once they had 
the gas pumped into shells, they could launch it wherever they wanted. Problem number two, chlorine gas remains active during five minutes and then the effect of it is gone. So really they wanted to develop a type of gas which was efficient for a longer time. And that's phosgene. Phosgene results in the fact that as you inhale it, the lung sacs will burst, the lungs will fill in with blood, and eventually a soldier will die in his own blood. He's going to drown in his own blood. He'll start coughing up blood, and once that's happening, you know there's nothing that can be done to save him. He's going to die a slow but horrible death. And still we haven't reached the jewel on the crown. Mustard gas. And here I would like to bring in the vomiting gas as well. Blowcroids. July 1917. A good two years after the first use of toxic gas, the Germans started launching vomiting gas on the Allied positions. Soldiers turned ill, had to throw up. Well, it's not going to kill them. But the next shell that launched, that was launched, was one with mustard gas. And as you inhale mustard gas, it results in the fact that lungs are shrinking and, you know, you're suffocating. Mustard gas works in two different ways. It's a fluid, it explodes in the air, it comes down in drops, Sticking to the uniform, penetrating through the uniform, penetrating through the skin, mutilating soldiers, creating blisters all over. So it's a very mean weapon. Towards the end of the war, the Germans stepped forward with arsenic gas. September 1918, it was used for the very first time. Arsenic gas results in the fact that the white blood cells are dying off. So little by little, a body is poisoning itself. This middle picture is interesting, but I don't know whether you've ever seen it. It's a German trench. Chlorine gas being driven by the wind towards the enemy and German soldiers lined up waiting to go into the attack. No. So how do we deal with toxic shells? Well, in a, a shrapnel shell and a high explosive shell, basically you can identify those fairly easy looking at the fuses. Toxic shells, there's a different story there. During wartime there were crosses painted on it or circular rings giving away, the color code gave away which type of gas the shell was filled in with. But sadly enough, the paint they have used at the time mustn't have been the best of quality. We've never ever found a shell with still paint sticking to it. So we can't identify shells as being to toxic. Even the trained soldiers of the bomb disposal cannot do it with a bare eye. An X-ray machine, that's what they use, which allows them to have a look on the inside. Until 1970, it was allowed to pour those toxic shells into big concrete blocks and those blocks would then be dumped into the sea. Belgium has a very short coastal line, 67 kilometers, so we've been kind enough to dump it in front of France. <laughs> the reason why being the fact that the sea goes to you know, low depths very quickly and it was generally accepted that once those blocks of concrete would be resting on the bottom of the sea, well, okay, problem solved. In 1970, people started to become more aware of the environment. So the question started to come forward, what will the effect of the salty water on the concrete be like? And then the next question, will the gas ever be released into the sea? Well, no one knows the answer, but fact is that it became forbidden to dump. So all toxic ammunition has been piled up on the bomb disposal base in my back garden. By 1998, I had a stockpile of 27,000 toxic shells there not knowing really well how to deal with those. It's under pressure of the local population that really started to become worried over this, that eventually a factory has been built. Now, what if a plane would drop? What if the earth would tremble that a little bit too much? I know that's more likely to happen here than with us, but still, you know, it could have set off a chain reaction which would have created a disaster for the whole salient.
So a dismantling factory has been built. Shells will be x-rayed. Once identified as toxic, they go through the dismantling factory on remote control. And this is what they see. Well, that's one of the vomiting gas shells, the Blokroys. You can still see the bottle in here. No, and it's quite unique because in most cases the bottles have broken on the impact. So that's vomiting gas. Or this is what they see. Toxic shells. These are pictures of the bomb disposal showing the gas in different situations, if I can put it like that. The first one is one which the bomb disposal will always refer to as a shell which has been sweating. And it's got nothing to do with the weather conditions. Sweating means that tiny little parts of gas have been penetrating through the armor and shield. It's sitting on the outside of the shell. You can't smell it and you can't see it, but yet it's there. So don't touch shells. And it will soon become clear. This is an easy situation. You have the canister with a high explosive and you have a low level of gas. Gas. So the circle saw will just cut in between, cutting off the fuse and then a soldier will be sent in with a special suit which seals him off completely and it's his task to pour out the gas into containers. Those, contain those containers, when full, will be sealed and will then be burned at extreme high temperatures. So this is a normal situation with the gas level just below the canister. To the right hand side we have a bit of a problem. Um, they don't want to hit the canister with a high explosive and they don't want to hit the gas. So there it really becomes a, 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 well, a fact that they have to cut to the millimeter precise. Soldiers send in and then pouring it out, burning it. That picture I'm sure all of you are familiar with, chlorine gas, but this one probably you're not. This is the arm of a soldier of the bomb disposal. And that's a soldier who picked up a shell which has been sweating. They always tell the, to farmers, don't lift any live ammunition without gloves on, please. Yeah, you stick to the same rules, please. <laughs> so that is a tiny little bit of mustard gas, just getting in touch with the skin. Can you imagine what it must have been like being caught in a cloud of mustard gas? The only protection soldiers had was their ground shield. That was waterproof and mustard gas couldn't get through that. But other, if you were exposed to mustard gas, you had those blisters all over the body. It's a very mean weapon, as I said. We are finding shells, we are finding trench mortars, different types. I won't go into detail because time is too short. Hand grenades, same story. All different types of hand grenades. The most interesting job to be done on a farm in Flanders, without the shatter of a doubt, that's harvesting potatoes. Because a harvesting machine lifts the whole topsoil. And then the whole lot is bouncing on chains. Well, the earth is supposed to drop through, not so the potatoes, not so the large shells and not so the rubbish. So our task is to stand on top of that machine with an iron basket, which gets filled in with boat. With boat. Once back home, you have to sort it out. The shrapnel will stay on the farm forever after. Live ammunition has to be reported. German egg hand grenades, which you see on the top right. These, well, harvesting in muddy conditions, you can't tell one from the other. They look very much alike, only the difference in weight will tell you that you're not holding a potato, but something different. German stick hand grenades, the wooden stick has always gone. Rifle grenades, the iron rod, which is supposed to be straight, to insert it into the barrel of the rifle. In most of the cases, it's snapped off. Sometimes there's a little part of it, but always bent. Mills bombs, and that surprises me, Violet for almost six months behind the Allied lines, and yet we do come across that many Mills bombs. There must be somewhere a reason to explain why we find that many. And German, and sorry, French, Vivienne Bossier hand grenades. 
used at the very beginning of the war, around violet form, September, October 1914, or September 1918 by the Belgians. Because no the Belgians nor the French were involved in the whole spell of time in between. You're finding rifles and bayonets as well. Don't expect to go walking across the fields and to come across a rifle just like that. Rifles are being found while ploughing. It occurs that when lifting the plough at the end of the field, that there's a rifle hanging onto it, always in this shape. So it hasn't been designed to shoot around the corner, as I've been asked so many times. We have to switch it up and then we can put it on display, the French rifle on top, the German one in the middle and the British one below. Immediately it will draw your attention that the British bayonets are longer than the German ones. The French one is not complete, let that be clear, it's snapped off. But the British bayonets are longer than the butcher blades, the German ones. But clear enough why, the British rifles were shorter. So when it came to man-to-man -man fighting, with the same length of bayonet, you would have been at a disadvantage. The difference in length of rifle had to be balanced out by the difference in length of bayonet. As always, there's the exception to the rule, well, the French are. Not only did they have the longest rifle, but they had the longest bayonet as well. Drinking bottles, the chances today to find those in that good of condition, I have to admit, are as good as none, as a farmer. Sure enough, they're drinking bottles in Flanders fields still, but down deep in the clay. Three years ago, in the village of Poolkapelle, new sewage systems have been dug in. And for the first time, they took some of the side streets in as well to establish sewage pipes. And then they have to build collecting points. Five meters deep in Flanders clay. Then they come across a leather bag in which a Lewis machine gun was found in pristine condition. The bag had protected it in the first place. The clay had sealed off the water and the oxygen. All parts were still working. So... Don't tell me that that's the only stuff which is still down there. You know, there's probably an awful lot still. British bottle to the left, German drinking bottle to the right. Rum jars, well, those have not been found on our fields. Those were found on the attic. Uh, if you hit a rum jar with a plow, well, that was a rum jar, you know. So those were used to uh, transport rum, but other liquids as well. Always letters SRD painted on it or printed in it. Service reserve depot. That was official. Soon runs dry, seldom reaches destination, service run diluted. That was the less official one. Silent pickets are quite interesting as well. I have to say those are the only straight ones we have. Because again, when you find them while working on the fields, they're bent. And once bent, you can't bend them straight anymore. At the outbreak of war, both armies had wooden hammers and wooden uh, or iron pickets to establish ball by offences. They always did that overnight to avoid from being shot by snipers. But then, of course, if you start hammering in the middle of the night, the enemy can hear you working out there. A flare would be sent over, machine gun would start working, and that was it. This, was, this design has been invented in the United States and has been produced by Sweden. Sweden was supposed to be neutral. Oh, yes, they were. They delivered to both armies. That's another way of being neutral. The clever idea here is it allows you to put your bayonet, your rifle, the barrel of your rifle through the curl and to screw it in the soil. So no hammering anymore, hence the nickname silent pickets. Barbed wire, of course, is not going through the curls, but it's hooked into the curls, which goes a lot faster. Helmets, German helmets on top, British below. First World War helmet to the right, uh, Second World to the left. The main difference between both are the bolts. You can see that the First World War helmet has a bolt on either side, never to be seen on the Second World War helmet. Let it be clear that that is not decoration. 
When steel helmets were being produced for the very first time, late 1915, they have been used for the first time during the Battle of Verdun, February 1916, some German soldiers would not only be provided with a helmet, but on top of that with a protective shield, which could be mounted on those balls. That shield was not supposed to come down as a visor to protect the face, as would have been the case in the Middle Ages. No, it was just sitting there to allow them to have a look over the parapet of the trench. The shield was thick and solid enough to stop a bullet of an enemy sniper. But however efficient those shields proved to be, they weren't really practical in use, due to the weight. Three and a half kilos for the shield, one and a half for the helmet, so five kilos up there, far too much. But still a better option than having a little hole there, I would say. I know for a fact that German soldiers will never have heard the word whiplash. Some of them will have known exactly what it meant. You know. Buckles, silent witnesses of what happened on Flanders fields, on our fields, because whatever I show here has been found on the fields of Violet Farm. You don't leave behind your webbing as a soldier. So when we find that, there's always the, the thought that goes to your mind, what happened here at the time? Well, we can't reconstruct, we will never know. I'm happy to say that the amount of belt buckles being found and, and webbing buckles is going down. There's not that many being found lately. Entrenching tools, same story. Those are the entrenching tools which we have, which are in pristine condition. And those are the only three. The rest is just corroded away. Just the middle rim is still there and the rest has corroded. But this is a nice discovery. German Maxim machine gun, found just to the east of Violet Farm, was one of the two machine guns... Um, I have no proof of the other one, but I'm pretty sure the Germans had a moated, moated farm reinforced with concrete. We came across a trench on one side with a machine gun. Well, my female logic tells me there's a similar trench on the opposite side. Two machine guns could cover the field in front of Violet Farm, the direction of which the Allies were approaching the farm. It's one from the early days of war. Well, how do I know? It's a water-cooled one. The jacket there was supposed to be filled in with water, connected with the pipe with a condenser, corroded as well, cooling the water, the water down. These could fire up to 600 rounds a minute, 1914. That's an incredible amount for those days. They're normally produced on an iron sledge. They normally have a viewer, a viewer as well. Well, we didn't find nor one nor the other. Don't know where it has been destroyed. Don't know where it has been recy recycled. Fact is that this is the only part of the German machine gun we found. And I would like to wrap it up with this picture. Top left is a picture showing the iron harvest on Violet Farm in three months' time. Bottom right is the iron harvest on a neighboring farm one afternoon. Our neighbor's son decided to take over the farm run by his father. His father used to have cattle, as did his grandfather. In other words, shortly after the First World War, when they settled in the area, meadows were being established, and meadows are never being ploughed in Belgium. They remain a meadow from one year to the other. The young farmer took over the farm, decided to get rid of the cattle, decided to plough up the meadow. And this is the iron harvest which was found that afternoon, the legacy of the First World War on Flanders fields. <laughs> Thank you. Kind <laughs> 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 of.